Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary with me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, I'm just going to start by by doing my uh, a, a, this occasional mornings having a puppy waking up too early, which meant that I could watch the first half hour of Morning Joe. And I'm bringing this up only because there were two main topics on the first hour, uh, three main topics. One was Ukraine, which we'll get to. The other was Donald Trump and his accounting firm and how the accounting firm has you know, now said that it can't stand behind the 10 years of accounting reports that they issued and Trump saying that they're only doing this because they've been put under insane pressure by the New York State Attorney General. And so they are just trying to protect themselves against political uh, prosecution. And so, you know, the uh, accounting experts on the Morning Joe panel, all of whom I think have advanced degrees in accounting, uh, including, you know, Mara Gay of the New York Times, who, you know, is famously, I think, you know, uh, one of the world's foremost accountants, um, informed us that this real this could really be it. Because, you know, when an accounting firm does an accounting and says it can't account for its accounting, no, now it's now now he's really in trouble. OK, so the, that's the uh, Mazar's accounting thing. And then they go to Durham and the John Durham investigation, which is a very complicated subject. Uh, and, you know, there are people on the right, uh, like Andy McCarthy, who wrote a piece in National Review saying he's getting a whiff of Mueller, which is to say that Durham is uncovering shady and unethical conduct uh, in all kinds of ways. But so far, it does not appear that anything that went on actually violated any law that this DNS investigation uh, seems to have been within the parameters of legality. And therefore, uh, the expectation on the right that the Durham investigation was going to blow a hole, blow this whole thing wide open, that there's a vast conspiracy, illegal conspiracy to defame Trump and use privileged White House information, all that, that that does it actually doesn't rise to that level. There's a misunderstanding about that. So that's actually how very sophisticated minds on the right are, are, are laying this out, not denying the severity of the possibility that there was this kind of conspiracy and a tech company misused information that it had legally because this guy was trying to curry favor, the tech executive was trying to curry favor with the Clinton campaign in hopes of getting a big job on the, you know, in the Clinton White House or in the Clinton administration. But the scorn with which the people on Morning Joe, Claire McCaskill, former senator from Missouri in particular, the scorn that was heaped on Durham and the Durham investigation as though the very idea that something untoward might have happened in a really hard-fought campaign between two very, very, very aggressive campaigns, uh, take no prisoners campaigns, um, and certainly any no no rational person would accuse Hillary Clinton or the Clinton machine of being anything less than savage in the pursuit of their own interests. 
that uh, there was just this dismissive scorn. Brian Stelter did it at CNN the other day in his newsletter, acting as though the issue here was how this finding that Durham released and this document that he put out sort of warning a law firm that it might have a conflict of interest in pursuing or defending uh, one of the people who was involved in the case. This was just beyond. It's just right wing propaganda. And it's just shocking that it should happen. Meanwhile, we've spent we spent four years with incredibly flimsy pretexts uh, on details of the Trump malfeasance question. Nicole Wallace's show on MSNBC is two hours a day uh, of summations of evils perpetrated by Trump, 99% of which never developed into anything uh, that anybody could charge. So I only bring this up to say um, everything is terrible. That's it. Okay. Now, please. Somebody well, I, else speak. I, well, just about this. Um, what's so entertaining to me, distressing and, you know, equal measure is how Democrats, the left, anti-Trumpists, whatever you want to, whatever combination of groups we're talking about here are continually undermined by their own involvement in the exactly the same things that they are forever accusing the right of doing, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, underhanded election tactics or, um, you know, uh, sort of mob action or uh, um, uh, voting nonsense. It's, it's just constant. And, and, and it's just, it eats away at them at every step. And, uh, you know, obviously they can't, they, they can't tolerate it. Well, you talked about the sophisticated minds on the right and what they're witnessing out of the Durham investigation using their <clears throat> understanding of the law and history to interpret these uh, findings insofar as we even know them. What are the unsophisticated voices on the right saying? What were they expecting? Because that's likely informing this triumphalist reaction from the left. They're not reading Andy McCarthy. Well, I think what they are saying is, aha, you see, they're just it's it's been. But you it's see what I'm this, saying is they're, they were yeah. expect the, you know, the Trumpiest voices on the right who they most enjoy drinking their tears. You know, that's who they're reacting to. So what did right. What did the Trumpy voices expect from the Durham campaign? Because I don't keep my finger on the pulse. Of they the wanted a smoking right. gun. They wanted a smoking gun. That well, they thought that they, it was a smoking gun. They thought gun. it was. But, but what did but the gun the, fire at? But no, you, the you gun, see what I'm saying? Like, who's yeah, the victim here? And Hillary, what, was, what was the crime? Hillary. No, the gun, the gun was fired at Trump. The right. idea that the, the narrative, the conservative narrative or whatever you want to call it, the Trump narrative is that a tech company in uh, working in cahoots with the Clinton campaign Spied improperly on, or yeah. illegally used uh, DNS address data uh, that was collected from Trump Tower, from the Trump International Hotel and from the executive office of the president to seek to defame Donald Trump. And that uh, what we thought when you first read this was, oh my God, this must be proprietary information that they have no right to have access to. 
and therefore there is a smoking gun they were they were doing something illegal with computer surveillance and you know the the you know the uh, the walls were closing in on this lawyer for the clinton campaign uh, sussman and on this tech executive except of course there have been no indictments on any of these matters the only indictment is that sussman the lawyer made a false statement to the FBI when he said that when he brought them anti-Trump information that he was doing so on his own and not as an employee of the Clinton campaign and he was an employee of the the, Clinton campaign. So that's the indictment. The indictment that exists is of Sussman lying to the FBI about what motivated him to bring information on Trump and this bank to them. and there's another I mean, there is a sort of 30,000 foot narrative here, too, in which in which case I think actually the Trump, the pro Trump folks are right, which is to say they in order for the Hillary campaign to get the media to pick up a story claiming that there was this collusion, they had to they couldn't just go to them and leak the information straight to the media, which would uh, presumably look into it and you know not find much. But they could go and say the FBI is investigating this. Right. So the FBI is investigating Trump's links to Russia. And then that becomes the story. And that is the beginning of the collusion. So on that score, I think they are right to say that there was, but again, like uh, legal, legal but ethically dodgy, should can describe both the Trump campaign right. and the Hillary well, Clinton campaign. I, I don't want to. What about? I mean, look, uh, the whole story with the Steele dossier was that for a month there were desperate efforts by people around the Clinton campaign to retail the information in the Steele dossier to reporters around Washington. And it really didn't work. David Korn of the Mother Jones or whatever bit a little bit. And Michael Isikoff of Yahoo bit a little bit. But mostly people were saying, I'm not going I'm not going anywhere near this. This is unsubstantiated information. I have no idea what you're doing. I'm we're not I'm not touching this. Right. So eventually. They got BuzzFeed to publish it. And the fact that it was published in BuzzFeed then allowed uh, maybe I have the sequence wrong, but then Mueller, uh, excuse me, Comey, the FBI director, of course, goes to Trump and says, somebody is conducting surveillance on you. You need to know that this is happening. And as we now know, pretty much that was an effort to smoke Trump out. He wasn't telling him that, you know, there was a, a slander and libel campaign going on Uh, on the part of Trump's enemies, he went to Trump to say this, to see if he could get Trump to fess up. He was trying to sort of entrap him with the information, the behavior of the outgoing Obama administration, Comey and, and, and people in, you know, in this realm, all of which was an effort to get law enforcement involved because the media, which were of course implacably hostile to Trump, nonetheless really weren't willing to take this final step and simply retail unsubstantiated salacious and disgusting information without any ability to confirm anything independently uh it was like the last gasp of responsible of responsible behavior it really was i ain't touching this what do you mean what do you mean golden showers you know what what are you talking about when was that who said it is there video is there you know like all of that okay so that's the that's the that's the the bad stuff was yeah it, because if you can get the story to be not trump is alleged to have done x 
but that the allegations are so serious that law enforcement is actually engaged in an investigation of X. Uh, that's a better story. It's a better story. It also it also um, uh, cauterizes the source. That's why Sussman wanted to do this. It's like it didn't come from it didn't come from the Hillary campaign. It came from a lawyer in Washington. Uh, who concerned citizen who happened to to fall into a possession of this information? I think my point is that um, again, I don't want to like praise us or talk about how one, but at the beginning of the administration, when all the stories were being retailed about Trump and Russia and, and all this, I had an open mind about how seriously to take these allegations. And I thought we should take Mueller seriously. We should take the allegations serious. You know, like stuff is going on. He's talked very weirdly about Putin. It's all very discomforting. I don't know. Then there was the then the, then there was the information about the Trump Tower meeting, which came out in June of seventeen, and the fact that Trump had dictated a false memo on a plane to try to cover up what had happened. And, you know, the idea that something very untoward happened and that Mueller might indict him or something, it seemed to me to be perfectly plausible that it wasn't just, you know, a witch hunt and that there was something there that needed to be investigated. OK, so over time and as things progressed and as I we read the report and all this information came out, it became increasingly clear to me that this that, that there was a lot of dirty pool going on here, particularly with the FISA warrants against the three officials of the campaign when this investigation started who was behind it and and the and the and the uh and and uh the behavior of the Mueller uh you know Mueller refusing to indict and then this genuine sort of general outrage at Bill Barr's character coming out and saying we are you know there will be no indictment of Donald Trump um, in the Mueller uh, case and then this this being deemed some illegitimate act that the Attorney General of the United States should want to tell the American people that the special investigation into their president had revealed nothing had revealed he was not going to be indicted as though that wasn't something so important that they should know about it as quickly as possible right and 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 things going on like that. I don't really understand, except naked partisan horror and disgustingness, why people on the other side can't look at what Durham is coming up with and say, this stinks to high heaven. Well, this is bad. The FISA court and, and the same stuff with the stuff that Eli Lake has been writing about in commentary for two years or three years, right? The FISA court stuff is terrible. It, this, these powers can be abused against anybody at any time if they are abused this way. Uh, the using, you know, using the fact of an original FISA court investigation to allow, you know, to, using news stories about the FISA court investigation to justify continuing FISA investigations into Carter Page, into and into Papadopoulos, these like these like nonsense indictments, 14 day sentences for misbehavior that didn't happen and all of that. Why can't they say the Clinton campaign was dirty and that they were engaged, even if they want to say this was noble because Trump is the worst thing that ever happened. Because I that is yeah. because that is the triumphalist claim of the of the Trumpy side. Right. I mean, the excitement over the recent Durham revelations was in large part the, uh, on the on the Trumpy side was was the hope that this would vindicate Trump's 
claim that the that Clinton that the Clinton campaign had spied on him. There was the interview with Leslie Stahl when he repeatedly said that uh, the Clinton campaign had spied on him, and she said, "Oh, not, there's no evidence. That's not true. They didn't spy." So, look, I, I I have full faith in Andy McCarthy when it comes to this stuff. If it's not uh, the legal definition of spying, so be it. Um, I think in the sort of in the sense in which we discuss these things in the colloquial sense, I would call it spying. And I think if it were any other people involved, a lot of people would be calling it spying and fabricating, which is also what Trump said. I mean, we, we, the latest the latest Durham revelation shows that not only did they get information pertaining to uh, White House servers and and servers involving Trump Tower, but they relayed the content of it in the contexts that made it seem much more inflammatory than it actually is. This is a big story. This is some kind of vindication. It's not the most important thing in the world. It's, it may not have the legal ramifications that some hope for, but it there. I think any fair reading of this says there's a ton of egg on on the faces of of the Clinton campaigns and, and their supporters who said that uh, they were upstanding and Trump was doing nothing but lying about them. That's very important because if I said to you, like a presidential campaign used very hard edge tactics in order to dig up whatever it could on its rival in order to get, you know, pull, get itself three yards in a cloud of dust over the finish line, winning the election, that would not seem like a controversial claim at any other time. The thing is that Trump always spoke the quiet part out loud. He he, you know, said, uh, you know, I, I want you to dig up dirt. I want the Russians to give me Hillary's emails. I want you to do this. I want you to. Everybody is like blanching in horror and all of that, because this was the ultimate violation of kind of night political niceties. But when he said at some point, you know, during the campaign, when somebody said to him, you say you hate Hillary Clinton, but you went to you had her at your wedding. And he's like, yeah, that's how we do things. That's how the game is played in the world of power. And you want to elect me because I know this in my marrow. I know how corrupt elite America is because I'm in it. I'm part of it. I play the game. And you set a thief to catch a thief. Hillary Clinton and her people going around like they're Caesar's wife. Give me a goddamn break. I mean, you know, they invented scorched earth political tactics, defaming and destroying reputations of people whose great crime was that Clinton abused them. And then they had the temerity not to keep their mouths shut. I mean, and she was a willing and active participant in the cover-ups and the character assassinations. She participated in it herself. Uh, she had the travel office at the White House fired in order that she could install her friend running the travel office, which was a lucrative private you know, booking and airline business. And not only did she do that, but she and her people attempted to refer officials in the travel office for criminal indictment in order to cover her tracks and say the reason that she had done this 
was because there had been malfeasance in the office. She's a terrible person. She's a terrible public official. She ran a corrupt foundation. And the idea that people who know all this find it impossible to say in the heat of the 2016 election, they pulled out all the stops that they could to try to win. And even righteously, if you think that Trump is the worst thing that ever happened, by doing that, by playing hardball, by being tough, by using whatever means were at their disposal, they were trying to save America from this terrible fate. And in that sense, you set a thief to catch a thief. We're now in 2022, and we've got people blanching at the notion that Hillary Clinton is being investigated by a special counsel. Hillary Clinton has spent her entire life being investigated by special counsels. She's a crook. Everybody knows she's a crook. Where did all that money for the Clinton Foundation go? Where did that $115 million disappear to? What's the story there? Like, I, you know, I'm not being Trump in 2016. I mean, everybody knows she's a crook. Everybody knows that her people are unethical. Most politicians and political campaigns like this behave in ways that skirt the boundaries of ethics. That's what happened here, even if there isn't criminality. That's where that's where Abe is right. They really want to go to the mattresses and defend this behavior. I mean, I'm not even talking about like wanting to establish their credibility in all of this. Like, who are they talking to? Why don't they try to make it right historic with the historical record so that they don't simply look like they were carrying water as more and more information comes out that will be in the history books about how this happened on both sides? Okay, I'm ranting. I'm sorry I'm ranting. But it's partially because I'm excited. We have a new advertiser, and I wanted to get you all hepped up so you could listen as I tell you about Novo. Fortune favors the bold, the strong, the brave. For your business to break out of anything holding you back, you need business checking as brave as you are. So here I am introducing Novo Business Checking. Powerfully simple business checking. And unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks, online, and more. Sign up for Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who found the customizable business checking solution that admires their bravery. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co slash commentary. Plus, Commentary Magazine listeners get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co, not com, novo.co slash commentary to sign up for free. Novo.co slash commentary. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings FA, member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, all right. Um, do we want to talk about Gail Walensky or is that is this too painful? Or do we want <laughs> it's to make emotionally fun of taxing? Uh, Robbie Suave at Reason uh, ha- has gotten the uh, transcript of a uh, of a behind closed doors meeting uh, with Congress. Uh, CDC director Gail Walensky and others uh, testifying. Uh, Rochelle Walensky. Rochelle, I'm sorry, Rochelle, Gail, yeah. Gail Walensky. <laughs> was a HHS official in the first Bush administration. This is how old I am, people. 
I'm now like, oh, that was Gail Walensky who helped administer Social Security during the, you know, anyway, sorry to be stupid. Um, Rochelle Walensky uh, basically said, no, I'm never going to lift the mask mandate, particularly in schools, kind of, right? Well, no, she wants to have it both ways. What she said when pressed by both Republicans and Democrats, it, it should be noted, because which is the new normal Democrats pushing back on some of these more restrictive mandates. Uh, but Republicans pointing out, look, we've always been an outlier with masking for kids in schools. Lo states are dropping them. Governors are saying, you know, you should be able to opt out. When are you going to move here? Because the problem, of course, and I see this as someone who lives in a city that does this, some very deep blue places still rely on CDC guidance as if it is writ. I mean, they will not, anytime someone questions a mandate, they say, well, the CDC says we should do this and so we're gonna stick with this until they change their guidance as if guidance can't be ignored uh, all the time. So she's been pushed on this and her answer was, well, was to go to case rates and transmission rates, all the stuff that we now know post Omicron, not to be a good assessment of how dangerous the virus is. Uh, and, and we already know that it's not spread in schools. The community spread rates there are lower. So she basically avoided answering the question directly and is spinning her wheels while then ha giving herself an opt out by saying, well, of course, local communities can do whatever they want. We've always said that, knowing full well that most local communities will punt their decision making to the CDC and do nothing and keep these mandates in place. Okay, but yeah, she, she said it's been... just guidance. It's just guidance. You don't have to follow our guidance. It's always been guidance. But she's so, you know, I guess the context around this leaked audio is interesting. But she said as much on the record on Wednesday um, in, an, <clears throat> in an address for the COVID response team, the administration's COVID response team, that, you know, basically Zeitz said, oh, we're getting to a place where eventually we can possibly continue to think about approaching the orbit of when this wouldn't be a crisis anymore. And Molinsky um, said, we want to give people a break from things like mask wearing when these metrics are better. The weirdness about so that she said the same thing off the record as she said on the record on Wednesday. The weirdness of all of this is that the media and the CDC has spent the entire week teeing up the idea that on Wednesday there would be a relaxation of masking guidance. Go ahead and search all the news reports, NBC News, New York Times, half a dozen other outlets saying, get ready on Wednesday, the CDC is finally going to catch up to, you know, take the temperature out there and, and, and catch up to ha the half dozen Democratic governors who have already relaxed their masking statutes. And then they just didn't. That's the story that I want to know the answer to. Right. What changed? We don't get that from this suave audio. In fact, even the Democrats who are quoted in this in this audio or captured in this audio, rather, are very confused because they expected something to happen that just didn't. OK, so let's let's go into that. So uh, the, the, the key person uh, quoted by Robbie Suave from this transcript is uh, Anna Eshoo, Democrat of California, who represents part of Silicon Valley. Uh, and here's what she said to Rochelle Walensky, good Democrat, you know, solid liberal Democrat. You hear the word confusion over and over again. But here's another one for you masking. You know, where I live in the Bay Area, the peninsula in the heart of Silicon Valley, schools, cities, towns, counties, you're saying one thing and they're doing something else. And this is a highly educated area, too. I trust our public health officials here. So my first question and my second point to you, Dr. Walensky, why do we have to be on two different tracks? Isn't there some kind of public health consensus about this? Uh, Robbie writes, Walensky replied by citing the national figures, 170,000 cases per day, 2,200 deaths per day, and was immediately cut off by Eshu. When you use the national figures, that's not a snapshot of where we are. So can you take that into consideration as you're giving me an answer? 
And then Walensky said, absolutely, we know all these decisions have to be made at the jurisdictional level, which of course means local level. So not only do we report the national data, but we have to report them at the jurisdictional level because we know that we ask the jurisdictions to look at their local context, to look at their local cases, to look at how their hospitals are doing, to look at their local death rates. And that is exactly what I think is happening across the country in a phased way. Many different policies are rolling out. Some are saying they're removing masks. Now some are saying they're removing masks at the end of the month. Some say we're removing masks at the end of the month, but not yet for schools. And so this is really happening at the jurisdictional level. And what we're recommending is that given right now where we are for cases, that the masks should stay on. So she's saying what we said two years ago, which is we're in America. America is a federal federalist system, federalized system. We should do things in different ways, and then we will be able to get a sense of, of what's the best way to handle this. That has never been the federal government's approach. The federal government's approach is uh, this, this, uh, the virus transcends borders, transcends state lines, transcends everything, and we therefore have to have national, we have to have a certain kind of national approach because, you know, the virus, if you do X in Florida, that doesn't mean people travel to Florida and then they leave and then they go somewhere else and then they'll carry the disease from Florida where you are. And and so we can't have everybody being different. And the CDC, meanwhile, issues guidance that is national by definition. She's, she's like saying, a public she's a public health sibyl, right? She's got two personalities. She wants to 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 not criticize these Democratic governors and understand that politically, it's very bad what they're doing with these continued mask mandates. On the other hand, she's a public health person. She wants everyone to wear a mask in perpetuity, including during you know regular flu seasons and to never eat undercooked meat. So like those seem to be the warring personalities. But you can't have your cake and eat it too, sweetie. Like this, it drives me absolutely mad because right. we the the when she's taking these numbers and these transmission rates, and she's then talking about schools, even their own studies of masking have major flaws. They've been debunked and, and poured over by lots of scientists. When she was pressed on that, she's like, well, lots of these studies have flaws. It's absolutely ridiculous. And if Biden was politically more savvy, he would throw her under the bus, appoint a new director and move on. He won't do okay. it. Right. OK, now here's what Eshu said after she made that argle bargle. There's lots of different things going on and using their all local information. Uh, but everybody should. But our guidance is everybody should keep their masks on. And so Eshu responded, I think that's confusing. Really? <laughs> no kidding. And I do think that it puts a dent in CDC credibility. Credibility is everything in this. Who are you going to pay attention to? So, I mean, it goes to that. and I think it's troubling. They're making it sound as if, you know, all of these local entities, public health directors, whatever, are not paying attention to the CDC. That's the way it looks to me. All right. That's the way it looks. That's the way it sounds. So I don't know. What should I tell my constituents? Oh, look at their website. I don't think that's a good answer. Honestly, she says. OK, so. Uh, basically. um we are being gaslit by and Congress is being gaslit by the head of the Centers for Disease Control. This is gaslighting. We're not telling everybody. We're just providing guidance that people can listen to or not listen to. But that guidance is that everybody should wear a mask indoors, particularly kids. But localities can do whatever they want. But and, and they should. 
because uh, we'll have lots of different responses. Our guidance is everybody should keep their mask on, but we can't tell them what to do, except that most places want the CDC's imprimatur. So I don't know. And then you have these members of Congress going, what are you doing? How can you talk this way? What is the matter with you? It's, it is astounding. And my only hope, I have just one desperate hope. And it goes to your point, Christine. And no, I, I think you should reflect on this a little bit also, which is they got out ahead of their skis saying that they were going to basically announce new guidance now because they want to announce the guidance in the State of the Union. And the White House said, you shut the hell up. So Biden is the one who can make the announcement in front of Congress on March 1st or whatever the State of the Union is. A, a speech, by the way, that will be delivered to 200 members of Congress who will all be socially distanced, which would be very funny if he says, guess what? The mask mandates are over. Maybe let everybody else back in. They just can't quit those restrictions. Just <laughs> Noah, what's your... I mean, it's really cynical, but you couldn't put it past this White House. It'd also be really stupid because they did that already. Remember July 4th, Freedom from the Virus Day, which landed like an absolute thud because the CDC had already reversed its masking guidance a month earlier. And prior to that, localities were already removing their masking guidance and everybody had moved on by July 4th only for it to resurge and for everybody to, to have a freak out over the Delta wave and then the Omicron wave. And then we were told for the better part of six months that the administration was burnt, badly stung by getting out in front of something when they had actually not got out in front of anything, but getting out in front of an issue that hadn't resolved itself. And then they felt like, oh, we were premature in that. And we suffered a political backlash as a result because the Americans are really con deeply concerned about this virus. And when it resurged, they lost all we lost credibility in that. In that maneuver. So they'd essentially be doing the exact same thing again by attempting to take credit for events that have already left them behind, far behind. But, uh, so I'm therefore convinced John is 100% right. That is exactly what they're going to do because it is perfectly in keeping with Biden's sense of events, anniversaries, special dates, timelines. Right. I mean, it started with the whatever. I don't even remember who was going to get a million shots in the first hundred day of hundred million shots. And I don't even remember the number anymore. You know, but a hundred million shots in a in hundred days, hundred million shots in a hundred days. We were going to withdraw from Afghanistan on 9-11, you know, um, so I, I am sure <laughs> it'll he totally... loves to, he loves to sit on things or or, right. or, you know, put it put stamp things with a with a ceremonious date. It's totally in keeping with how the administration respond, but it'll also cement the impression in anybody's mind who's persuadable at this point that the administration is just sort of an, an observer of events, so, and not not dictating them, but just sort of acknowledging that they exist two weeks after the fact. Well, and they're going to have the optics are really changing. It's not just the rhetoric of, oh, if you don't wear a mask, you're trying to kill people. You know, Ron Death Santis, the governor of Florida. We're past that point. We have high school students on the regular in California leaving school in protest of the mask mandates in California. I mean, this is not, you know, this isn't in, in Florida or in places that have already lifted them. So you're going to see more and more just common sense people. I see it actually in D.C. I, I've heard people start saying, 
maybe home rule was a bad idea because they, they're just so sick of the fact that every time a, an elected local official is pressed on this, they point they can point to the CDC, which is giving them cover. That is what Rochelle Walensky is doing at this point. She's giving local officials cover to not have to make the tough decisions, which some of their constituents who want COVID zero policies will oppose. Well, I that's mean, the that's, thing. That's I mean, reality. not assuming bad faith on the part of the administration. They are working themselves up into knots over polling data that suggests, well, the vast majority of Americans are over it and want to move on. We're not entirely sure what that means, because there is also plenty of polling that suggests people, by people, people saying they want to move on also means that they, they, they're not opposed to masking, that masking should just be part of the status quo. Um, that number is declining in every poll you see, but it is not a small number of Americans. It's some, some surveys, it's a majority of Americans who are not opposed to mask mandates. So maybe they're looking at the polling data and saying, you know, this is what Americans want. And if we were to get too far, you know, out ahead of this thing, we could we could outpace public opinion in a way that, you know, that makes us less relevant to the conversation. I don't know what they're thinking, but that's certainly possible. I mean, it's also an interesting question about whether or not um, uh, they they find it impossible to have honest conversations inside the White House about this, that that everything is sort of covered in a layer of um you know, uh, pompous, pretentious crud, uh, all of which is about how all they want to do is help the American people and, and, and you know, and, and do the right thing and all of that. And you sort of want what we want is a little more cynicism, right? We want the this is killing us. Uh, we got to do something. I don't really think that's cynicism, really. I think when you see Democratic governors making these moves, to liberalize things. It's not cynical, it's responsive, right? But the White House uh, has a different response metric because it is nationwide. And it also has a different response metric because they fundamentally decided, uh, Trump, Trump, sorry, Obama, whatever. But I mean, uh, this has been going on now for several, uh, several administrations that they don't really represent the red states. They don't really represent the red states. The red states didn't vote for them, and he's president of the whole country. But the red states don't like him, and they don't vote for him, and he doesn't represent them. And so uh, the opinion, when you see these kind of things where it says, well, you know, 86% of Republicans want X, it's like, well, that means you can ignore that because those are Republicans, and he's a Democrat, and he doesn't they, he doesn't really represent them. That's a kind of new wrinkle in American politics. Obviously, you want to you know, uh, appeal to your constituents and your base and all of that. And the agenda that you run on is the agenda that you should govern from. But that doesn't mean that you don't represent the whole country. Joe and Biden if, does know, increasingly 30... doesn't represent Democrats either. <laughs> if the polling is to be believed, a significant yeah. portion of Democrats, including and they had this poll out in Florida that or Florida, California, and shows them underwater in California. by like. Right, but I'm points. not even talking about polling. I actually mean literally that, you know, he won. I don't know. He won 26 states and lost 24. And he doesn't think that he's the president of the 24 states that he lost. And by the way, Trump didn't think that he was the president of the 26 states, the 24 states that he lost either. This is a disease that has now come to afflict American politics. This is one of the horrors of polarization. The notion that maybe Trump, that Trump and Biden both should take the temperature of the entire country and not say, well, the people who don't like me feel this way and I should ignore them. That's I the point I'm making them. is that yeah. this consistent belief that he's this median Democrat has led him to be an alienating figure to Democrats. 
he's positioned himself as this he, his central identity to the point where he even articulated it in in terms that no one can mistake that he says i'm i'm basically the median democrat that's what he's wanted to be his entire career and the median democrat is unrepresentative of not just most of the country but even democrats which is why he's a toxic figure in california where he's underwater right in a state that he won by by 63 percent of the vote but then by definition he's not a median democrat exactly he's exactly that's exactly he's the Twitter's. point i'm trying to make is that right. okay in, yeah. in attempting to present himself as this ideologically uh you know bridge dividing figure He's create he's he's adopted and assumed bridge building a very a bridge building figure within the Democratic Party. He's adopted and assumed a lot of the conceits that are prevalent on the ideological left, none of which are representative of the country as a whole. So if you know, and this is also the the Twitterization of politics, but generally, the idea that he can he can straddle the divides within the Democratic Party has forced him far to the left of the country. Right. Well, and he's doing very, very badly with independence. I mean, that's actually the number that should concern them as a bellwether in terms of what where he's positioning himself um, in the party, because independents don't like him or Kamala like that. They, they are not happy with how they've been running the country. Look, it's very simple. Uh, there was a consensus with a very small, uh, you know, but very heated minority in 2020 that we needed to take very aggressive measures against the virus. That consensus has been breaking down over time. It no longer exists. And creating uniform national standards or even guidances based on a vanished consensus uh, on, on a highly controversial issue, meaning what it is that government can do to control human behavior, particularly uh, of the young, that is a that is a controversial topic always in the United States. And when you don't have consensus and you continue to govern top down, uh, you are not only waking, you're not only like enraging the people who didn't like you in the first place, but you are waking sleeping beasts all over the place because that's not the way it works. That's not the way consensus works in a, you know, in a highly divided multi-layered, multi-level uh, political society uh, like the United States, where you very gingerly try to make national policy. It's a ginger thing you do. And the and the airy way in which uh, Gail, uh, in which Rochelle, sorry, Gail, I apologize to Gail Walensky again, in which Rochelle Walensky uh, uh, imagines that it's fine for her to say, our guidance is that everybody just wear a mask all the time as though that is not the most controversial thing you can say in the United States right now. She says it as though it is a perfectly acceptable. She doesn't apologize. She doesn't try to create the conditions under which she can say it. She says it. And then, of course, we have all those kind of the background things where the CDC says you should never eat a rare or medium rare hamburger. Uh, CDC, you know, gives guidance on things that no human being could ever live by, sort of like Jewish law. <laughs> you can't you can't obey all 613 commandments. It, it would be impossible to do so. That doesn't mean the commandment shouldn't be there. But of course, those are dictated by God. And these are dictated by, you know, schleps in Atlanta, you know, who maybe work for the federal government because they weren't good enough to do uh, other stuff in the private sector. 
Speaking of the private sector and doing other stuff in the private sector, let's talk about HR issues and what Bambi can do for you as a small businessman. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, running a business, those HR issues can kill you. And those salaries for HR managers aren't cheap, an average of 70 grand a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to give you a dedicated HR manager, maintain your compliance, craft HR policy, all for just $99 a month. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. They customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just 99 bucks a month. Month to month, no hidden fees. Cancel anytime. Get your free HR audit today from Bambi. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule that free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary. B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Uh, So we're just sitting here waiting for the Russians to cross the border into Ukraine, right? Does anybody actually think this isn't going to happen? No, and I gather Julia Yaffe, Julia Yaffe of Puck and who was on Morning Joe this morning says she's not sure it's going to happen, but she is one of the dumbest people in the universe. So I now assume that it will happen. Well, in retrospect, it was actually kind of silly for us to think that, you know, war in Europe would start on a Wednesday. Why would it start on a Wednesday? Why would it start on a Friday? Well, because the eyes of the world are not on you. No. Why? What happens because of Friday night football? Usually, <laughs> a, week, night football it's, it's usually a weekend thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, like, that's just historically the, the point. Why and that's an interesting point. Okay. Nevertheless, well, why, I just have a quick question. Well, why wouldn't Putin want the eyes of the world on him? And, well, he never has previously. And, uh, you know, the uh, the reason why the Sochi invasion happened during Sochi, the 2014 invasion happened during Sochi is because Sochi was going on. And then, you know, historically, these things tend to happen on weekends. You know, big surprise attacks tend to happen on weekend. Port Arthur, uh, you know, uh, that's Pearl Harbor, right. you know, half a dozen others, Barbarossa. So it's usually a, it's a Sunday night thing, late, early Sunday morning thing. If that's historically what happens, we'll see. Nevertheless, um, yeah, they're moving a lot more assets into the region. Uh, some uh, attack helicopter divisions, which presumably would be used to take Kiev. I mean, that's still very much on the table, an operation that would decapitate the government very quickly. Um, and, you know, as unimaginable, as unthinkable as that is, rather, it's not unimaginable, it's increasingly imaginable. And then we get some violations along the line of contact, which is this uh, border between the Donbass occupied region and Donbass manned by Russian separatists, R- Russian back separatists and Ukrainian forces on the other side. And there was this uh, artillery attack on the uh, Ukrainian side of the border, hit a kindergarten, it injured a couple of people, wounded a couple of people, or injured a soldier. Um, Ukraine can't respond to any of this. So this is also using uh, heavy artillery, which is outlawed in the Minsk agreement. So you can't even, you're not even supposed to use these ordinances. Um, and Ukraine just can't respond. So the, the game now is for Russian separatists can do whatever they want. They can lob whatever shells over the border they want. They can kill whomever they want. And Ukraine can't respond. If it is to respond, that would be the provocation that would justify a, a broader Russian incursion. So I don't think this can last. And most likely, uh, you know, Russians will move when they want to move. It seems increasingly unlikely that they can de-escalate at this stage. Um, but, you know, we've just put Ukraine in this position where they're suffering tremendous economic consequences, profound economic, uh, you know, disruption, dislocation of uh, important individuals within the country who are already getting out if they can get out. Um, and uh, now, you know, attacks on their territory and they can do nothing about it. We put them in a position where they can't respond to violations of their sovereignty and attacks on their sovereign citizens. And it's kind of a tragedy. It's only going to get worse. 
I mean, it's weird to be talking about the economic dislocation to Ukraine, you know, when we're like three days away from the from Ukraine being ground invaded and there's no longer an economy, uh, you know, by 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 any rational definition of the term like, the, you know, all 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 business, all commerce, all human activity is disrupted in the most fundamental way. Um, and it's kind of a very weird uh, set of circumstances, um, uh, you know, this then gets to the question of is, is Zelensky uh, crazy or or is he crazy like a fox? Is he his hunger to uh, keep the Ukrainian people calm as opposed to mobilizing them is a very interesting set of developments. Like, why hasn't he told them all to go into shelters? Why hasn't he told them? Well, all, I don't think that's accurate. No, they what? Ukrainians find themselves in bomb shelters twice a day. Okay, no, you're um, they're, missing. They're my, mobilizing. Yeah. They're being trained as civilian soldiers. You know, twice. You right. know, in the streets. I mean, there's we have visual evidence okay. and, and documented yeah. evidence that civilians are being trained to uh, defend, right? Defend their territory. Well, the, well they have it. They have been consistently since twenty, actually since before Donbass and Crimea. Uh, this kind of citizen training. What I mean is that he spent like two weeks trying to talk down the threat um uh and maybe that maybe that's a form of disinformation on his own because he's actually what they're mostly doing is he's doing this while they're setting booby traps all over the place to try to you know wait to try to lull the russians into a false sense of security that they're just going to be able to march in and they actually have aggressive plans on the other hand Zelensky is a former tv performer who became president doesn't really necessarily seem like, uh, you know, a, a wartime leader, but you never know. The simplest explanation for this is the best. For, uh, Europe has not been taking our lead, getting diplomats out, you know, running to, to Lviv to have this, you know, half operational consulate that, you know, can justify our presence as though we're still there. We're not still there. Uh, Europe's ha Europe hasn't done that in part because Zelensky has an absolute national interest, imperative interest, in A, maintaining economic activity inside the country, domestic economic activity. You say that you're about to be bombed tomorrow. Economic activity stops. Two, maintaining private investment in Ukraine, ensuring that capital flows don't just immediately start rushing out of the country as fast as possible. And C, keeping weapons shipments going. If you say this is a lost cause, we're going to be overrun tomorrow, why would you keep sending Stinger anti-aircraft missiles into the country? That's only a liability for you. So he has every incentive to say this isn't gonna happen. And everybody in the West who's like, well, look, he says it's not even gonna happen, can't possibly imagine why the president of a country wouldn't wanna say to the rest of the world, don't abandon us. I don't know, the Soviets took over Afghanistan and we spent 10 years getting Stinger anti-aircraft missiles into the hands of the Yeah, Afghanistan I mean, doesn't not... didn't export machine parts, didn't export nuclear reactors. I, know, but... I mean, this is not Central Asia. I know, We're talking but talking about I, a key I'm element still... of the international, the global economy that's about to be ripped off the board. Are you? But I, I I've mean... got to say, I'm I, I'm confused by the messaging coming out of Ukraine as well, because I would understand it if it was purely don't stop helping us. But it's it, to me, it's muddled because it's nothing's going to happen. So don't stop helping us. I don't understand that. To me, that's not an effective plea. It's very weird. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's very weird to say uh, everything is going on as usual while 200,000 troops are amassing on your border. And economic activity should go on as it was ordinarily and we'll have a day of unity on Wednesday. I don't, it's not, 
you're acting as though capital flows haven't been running out of Ukraine by anybody who would get their money out. No, I'm sure I'm that's saying been they have been, and it's in his interest to arrest that process. But how can he arrest the process? They're all watching the news. I don't understand how who's going to listen to help that? that process if he were to set his hair on fire. He has an interest in doing and getting one thing happening. And so he's sending signals to ensure that that thing happens. I don't see how it helps him to contribute to a, a sense of, of emergency. Even though he is contributing to a sense of emergency and the, the mobilization, the maps are, that are being distributed to the citizenry of the bomb shelters. I and mean, everybody knows nobody's, nobody's confused as to what the worst case scenario could be here. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think Abe and I are both. You're 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 saying it's in his interest to simultaneously, you know, make make it clear to people that they're going to be living in bomb shelters for two years and to continue going to work and, you know, sending sending nuclear machinery parts out of out of the out. You know, I don't understand how any I mean, we don't even know if any economic activity of any real kind is going on, except that people are, I assume, are stockpiling uh and and doing stuff like that which is what people do in advance of a of a a horrible disaster anyway none of it doesn't really matter what we're talking about here because what's going to happen is is what's going to happen either putin is going to invade or he's not going going to invade and the new reality begins the second those troops cross the border and then we'll just be dealing with the new reality as will Zelensky. Zelensky is a very interesting and peculiar figure in world politics, it is strange that he is the guy who is leading the country at this moment. Um, he literally, it's like having John Goodman as president. You know, he was a, he was a, uh, played a, a president on TV and he's now the president of the country. And, you know, this is the most significant event to happen in Europe in 30 years. And he's basically, maybe he'll be fantastic. Uh, you probably kind of want a general. In there. I don't know. Who knows? I. This is. We're just in a very weird situation. We have. We have the when one of the lo- you know longest serving authoritarian uh, uh, power broker terror guys, uh, warmongers um, running a one country and a total novice running the other. Uh, the defend the country that needs to defend itself against his depredations. Again, maybe history has thrown up a genius, and this will be a wonderful set of circumstances. But I'm not—I don't think that's what one should bet on. Although I don't think one should bet on, you know, much of anything, despite the fact that, according to the Super Bowl, now all America is going to do is bet until it impoverishes itself and transfers all this money into into sports books that are probably owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Anyway, with because uh, that's what that's what we need. Uh, I will be gone for the next three shows, uh, Friday, Monday, and Tuesday. Two shows. Uh, There's no oh, show wait, we're not uh, two shows. We're not going to have a show on Monday because it's President's Day. So Friday and Tuesday. So uh, my colleagues here will show, soldier on without me, uh, maybe with some guests, maybe not. Uh, I hope you all have a wonderful President's Day weekend. And for a Noah and Christine, I'm John Pot Horitz. Keep the candle burning.